Side 10. While they watched, he laid the box on the floor and opened the lid. The thing he took out puzzled Kin. It looked like a small, flat teapot made out of adulterated gold. He polished it with his sleeve. Will you give me no peace, sorcerer? It had appeared a few feet away, hazy in a cloud of purple smoke. It was immediately obvious to Kin why Marco's appearance hadn't bothered the man. If he was used to things that looked like this, he was used to anything. It was man-hides, or would have been if it stood erect, but it was bent almost double, two thick gold-scaled arms and oversized hands serving as a second pair of legs. Clusters of tendrils grew out of its neck. Its face was long, vaguely horse-like, topped by a pair of pointy ears and tailed by two mustachios that trailed on to the floor. It wore a small cone-shaped hat. "'Know that I am Azrifel,' it began in a sing-song voice. "'Ginny of the desert, terror of thousands, scourge of millions, and, I must be frank about it, slave of the lamp. So, what do you want this time, master?' There was a long speech from the sorcerer. The ginny turned around until it faced the trio. My master Abu Ibn Infra presents his compliments and welcomes you to his humble abode, and a lot of stuff like that. If you want to eat, just tell the table. Your wish is its command. There's a lot of that sort of thing goes on around here, he added. Kin hunkered down beside the table and looked at it more closely. It was one block of crystal, but now that she paid close attention there seemed to be something else in there too, something like a moving wisp of faint smoke. She thought of cucumber and green paprillion salad, and the cinnamon ice cream she used to buy from Grun's old drugstore in Wonderstrands, the one with the recipe that Grun had refused to sell to the dumbwaiter programmers. There was always a black treel cherry on top. The memory of that taste welled up until she drooled. It grew out of the table. There was an impression of swirling movement in the crystal, and then it was there, smoking with frost. There was a black treel cherry on the top, and Kin picked up the carton and stared. It was in a familiar blue, black and white, and showed an anthropomorphic penguin in a chef's hat. Around the side was the old drug store, corner of Scrail and High, upper side Wonderstrands 667548. Tregin, Grun and siblings, Reg. We freeze to please. Marco stared at the carton, then looked down at the teasing shadows in the tabletop. I don't know how you managed that, he said carefully, but what I have in mind is the blue plate special they serve in Henry Horse's Kung Food Bar in New... He stopped, because it was already there. There was one bowl, heavy pottery, containing something under an orange-yellow crust that rumbled with internal eruptions. It must be telepathy, he said uncertainly. It's just a telepathic dumbwaiter. Come on, Silver, I'm hungry. You're hungry, said Silver. She drummed heavy fingers on the table edge. Then, doubtfully, I have in mind a dish of ceremonial trudok. The shadows swirled, disappeared. Silver's fingers drummed on. Smoke, guacacuac, with grinces, she suggested. A vague shape appeared above the crystal, then faded. Dardogs in brine? Shark sweetbreads? Chiqua? Dried kumkums? 
inside and pushed the ice cream away untasted. Is there a problem? said Azraphel. The table can't handle shand proteins, said Silver, sitting down heavily and drawing her knees up to her chin. What is a protein? Abu Ibn Infra seated himself comfortably by the far side of the table and put out his hand to grasp a crystal glass of pinkish liquid as it materialized beside him. Azraphel stirred and nodded as the man spoke. My master wishes to talk about your flying clothes and similar matters. More consultation. My master presents his compliments to his fellow collectors and offers in exchange for all three items. A mirror to see all things be they never so far, and two bottomless purses. Kin was aware of the other two looking at her. She said, Leaving aside for a moment his somewhat derisory offer, she had a feeling that a lack of the haggling spirit might be regarded as signs of general weakness, we come from a far-off land and do not quite understand the reference to collectors. Collectors of what? Abu Ibn Infra frowned as he listened to the translation. He spat out a reply. Kin wouldn't have thought it possible for anyone to spit several lengthy sentences, but he managed. He managed. My master is puzzled. You possess gifts of God, but you do not know of the collectors. He says, how can this be? Listen, demon, said Kin. You know. You're a projection like Svandor, aren't you? I find myself forbidden to answer that question at this moment in time, said Azraphel smugly. You are in the shit, that's all I know. If you think you're coming out of this alive, my reaction is ho, ho, ho. I will kill it, said Marco, half rising. The guards behind Ibn Infra stirred. Sit down, hissed Kin. You, demon, answer the question, what is a collector? My master says it is no secret. He himself was once a humble fisherman until, upon gutting a fish one day, he discovered inside it a gift of God. To wit, the lamp to which I am shamefully enslaved. I am Azrifel of the Ninth Dominion of the Damned. I can find anything, even the power to talk to you. That is my power. Four or five years I have labored mightily for this jumped-up pig of a nouveau riche former fisherman, spiriting to this somewhat pretentious palace such gifts of God as are unclaimed by other collectors or in the possession of collectors unfortunate enough to have demons weaker than I. I have combed the depths of the sea and the bowels of volcanoes. I have hurled it, said Kin. The flying carpet, the table, these damn money purses, their gifts of God. Aye, the carpet I liberated from a merchant in Basra, the table I found encrusted with barnacles on the sea floor. But your master doesn't know how they operate. I mean, they're just magical items to him. Aren't they then? said the demon, grinningly. Just as I thought, snapped Marco. He's just an ignorant man who doesn't know any more about the nature of the disk than does anyone else in these parts. I'll take out these guards, then we'll grab him and ride the carpet out of here. Wait a minute, said Kin sharply. What for? He knows nothing except how to operate the toys this creature finds for him. Kin shook her head. Just once let's try diplomacy, she said. Demon, tell your master we are not collectors. We will give him these flying belts for his collection if he transports us on his magic carpet to the circular island that lies off the coast to the southeast of here. 
She knew she had said something wrong as soon as the words were out of her mouth. When Azraphel's translation died away, Abu's face went white. Marco sighed and stood up. Okay, so much for diplomacy, he said. He sprang. So did Azraphel. There was a grey and yellow blur in midair and a small thunderclap. Then the demon was back, unruffled. Marco had vanished. What have you done with him? said Kin. He has been deposited in a place of safety, unharmed except maybe for a few friction burns. I see. And his ransom is our flying belts, right? Abu spoke. The demon said, No, my master says he knows now that you come from another world. There was another such traveller some time since who— Jago Jalo, said Kin. Abu glared at her. Crazy fool, hissed Silver. That was his name, agreed the demon. A madman. He abused our hospitality. He stole from our collection. He sought the forbidden island, too. What happened to him? said Kin. The demon shrugged. He escaped from here with a carpet, a bottomless purse, and a cloak with unusual powers. Even I have been unable to locate him. My master feels, however, that all is not lost. No? He has three new flying devices, two captive demons, and you. Kin sprang round. More guards had appeared on the balcony, and they were archers. She considered taking a dive for the open air with the belt on full throttle. She might get hit. She doubted whether the disc's medical facilities were satisfactory. Anyway, that wouldn't solve Silver's problem. So she collapsed into tears of inconsolable grief. She heard a brief conversation between the demon and his master. Then two servant women were summoned to take her away. She had one glimpse of Silver's impassive face before she was escorted out of the room and into a maze of ornate arches and screens. A male guard walked behind her with a drawn sword. The women chattered at her solicitously. When they reached one arched doorway, the guard left them and took up a post outside the door. Kin was briefly surrounded by a gaggle of small, dark-eyed women in scanty clothing before the older of her escorts shooed them away. She felt helpful arms guiding her to a bench. She sat and stared. Later a middle-aged woman brought her some food. Kin looked up at her gratefully. Under the strange makeup, the woman was watching her with simple-minded sympathy. So Kin apologised silently as she hit her as nicely as possible. The woman sighed and collapsed, but Kin was already on her feet and running. She sped through several low and airy rooms, and had a blurred impression of fountains, singing birds, and bored women sitting on large cushions. Coal-eyed, they stared after her, and began to scream as Kin cannoned into a servant carrying a tray. A long way behind her, a new series of screams suggested that a guard had reluctantly invaded the seraglio. Kin reached a balcony, considered the courtyard below, then scrambled up a decorative trellis that trembled even under her weight. It took her onto a flat roof and into the full glare of the noon sun. Shouts below meant that a guard had got as far as the balcony. Kin threw herself down, chest heaving, hoping that he would think that she had taken the easy way and dropped into the courtyard. He didn't. There was a sudden silence, broken by some heavy breathing. Then wood cracked, and there was the beginnings of a wail that ended with a noise like a falling man hitting hard stone flags. She jogged across the roof to the nearer of two towers that pierced it. 
It wasn't a wise choice, really, but she couldn't think of anything else. There was an arch with no door, and a dark spiral stairway as cold as ice after the glare of the sun off the roof. The stairs ended in a turret room with glassless windows looking out over the city. Kin peered around in the gloom. It looked as if she was in a storeroom. There were a few carpets rolled up against the wall, and boxes in untidy heaps beside them. A tall, bronze statue in vaguely middle-sea dress was propped against a three-legged table, with what looked like the wreckage of a drinking party strewn across it. There were several swords, including one that looked—Kin couldn't believe it, but closer inspection bore out the first impression—one that was half-buried in an anvil. In the middle of the floor was a statue of a horse cast in some dark metal. The musculature had been done well, but the pose was uninspiring. It just stood four-square, looking at the floor. "'Junk,' said Kin. She tried to pull an iron-bound chest across the stair-hole, then gave up and sat on it instead. There was no sound below. A person could hold out here for weeks, she thought, with food and water, that is. Food. She thought longingly of the magic table, or even of the dumb waiter. But she couldn't have eaten a meal with silver watching her sorrowfully, knowing that inside two days the Shand would turn, despite herself, into a ravening, ravenous animal. "'Marco!' "'Silver!' she whispered. At the fifth attempt Marco answered, "'Ken, where are you? I'm up in—' "'Is there anyone with you?' "'Where in Azu? You wouldn't believe it. Your must get us out.' "'I'm in some sort of museum attic,' she said. "'I'll have to wait until it's dark. Where are you exactly?' I assume we're somewhere in the palace grounds. You must work quickly. Silver and I are in the same cage. What's she doing now? Moping. Uh-oh. What? Kin sighed. I'll do my best, she said. She padded over to a window and peered out. Someone was shouting in the distance, but the roof lay hot and empty below her. There was, she noticed, a black speck wheeling in the sky, one of the eyes of God whoever he was. Most of the swords she could hardly lift with both hands, so they were out. "'Let's face it,' she told herself. "'How are you going to make the big heroic rescue in any case?' "'On the other hand,' she answered, "'it'll be expected of you. The races of the galaxy look towards mankind as the essential lunatic element.' She stepped backwards and knocked against the table. The jug on it fell over and spilled vinegar-smelling wine across the table and onto the floor in a thin stream. Kin watched it for a while, then carefully set the jug upright. It swished. Looking inside, she saw dark liquid rising. She waited until the jug was brimful of swirling redness, then grabbed the handle, sloshed the liquid across the room, and brought the base of the jug down hard against the tabletop. There was a sizzle and a brief smell of ozone. Bits of circuit laminate bounced on the floor. Fine, she said softly. That's just fine. So long as it wasn't the fairies that were doing it. On the other hand, the company didn't believe in matter transmission either, but it might have been, say, a tiny single function dumb waiter in the base of the jug, sucking up molecules from the ambient air. She decided she'd believe anything but magic. Someone moved down at the base of the staircase. There was nowhere to hide. Correction. The tower room was bursting with hiding places, but none of them promised to be permanent. Kin grabbed a sword from a pile nearby and considered hacking at the first head to appear on the stairs. No good. She looked up at a small trap door in the ceiling, a 
and decided it would be easier to defend. If it led onto the roof, perhaps the raven would see her, as if that would do any good. Anyway, she could then slice at fingers. She walked over to the horse statue and hoisted herself into a stirrup, then stood on tiptoe in the saddle to fumble with the trap door. The horse whirred. Kin swayed, landed, sitting in the saddle, but with enough force to knock the breath out of her. Then she couldn't move her legs. She looked down in panic. Padded clamps had extruded from the horse's flanks and were gripping her gently but firmly. The neck in front of her came up. The head swivelled 180 degrees, and the horse looked at Kin with bright, insectile eyes. "'Your wish is my command,' it said inside Kin's head. "'Hell! Those are not meaningful coordinates.' "'Are you a robot?' She felt the click and whir of gears underneath her. "'I am the fabulous mechanical horse of Ahmed, Prince of Trebizond.' Kin heard scurrying footsteps on the stairs. "'Get me out of here!' she hissed. "'Please hold on to the reins. Please lower the head. In case of malaise of the air, please use the receptacle provided.' There was a thud inside the animal, and the noise of heavy wheels tumbling into motion. The horse took off. As they glided smoothly through the window, Kin flung herself forward to avoid the edge of the wall, and then the horse was free and moving, legs galloping on the air as it soared into the copper sky. Kin looked at the sword in her hand. It was night-black and unnaturally light, but it would do. It would be surprising if Abu had learned how to use the lift belts yet, so possibly his only other aircraft was the carpet. If it came to an aerial fight, she'd prefer to be on the horse. Your further wish is my command. You can start by telling me how you fly, said Kin, peering at the gardens below. Abanazard, the magician fabricated me. I fly by application of the compound upswinging weight engine, which requires the continued intervention of the Dijini Zola at the critical point. Do you know of a zoo in the palace grounds? Yes. Land inside it, then. To hear is to obey, O oh mistress. The horse started to gallop in a descending spiral. Kin was briefly aware of upturned faces as they raced at roof height back towards the palace. A ragged line of dusty trees flashed past, and Kin realised they were landing in a wide avenue between rows of low cages, dark and forbidding in the gathering dusk. Her mount touched down neatly, hooves galloping smoothly from empty air to packed earth. Something hurled itself against the bars of the nearest cage, and she got a vague impression of wings and teeth. Plenty of teeth. Marco? Things shrilled and sneezed in the shadows of the cages. Over here! Kin urged the horse forward until she saw Marco's gleaming eyes looking urgently between bars thick enough to have been tree trunks. Perhaps they were. Kin jiggled them until they slid back noisily. Marco came out as though on a spring. Give me the sword! he commanded. Kin had almost handed it over before it occurred to her that she could have refused, and then it was too late. He snatched it. "'Is this the best you could do?' he hissed. "'It's blunt as a ball!' "'Big deal! I could have gone off and left you!' Marco tapped the flat of the black sword on one open palm and looked at her reflectively. "'Yes,' he said. "'You could. This sword will do. Thank you. From where did you obtain the flying robot?' "'Well, I went—' How do you make it fly? It just obeys and get down! Marco settled himself in the saddle and ignored her. 
Do you know the way to the palace, robot quadruped? Yes, O master. Then proceed. There was a brief drumming of hooves, and the horse was a dwindling speck against the sky. Kin watched it disappear, and then peered into the back of the cage. Silver? she said quietly. A light shape stirred in the gloom. Come on, said Kin. We'd better be going. How do you feel? Silver sat up. Where is the Kung? she said thickly. Gone to beat up the baddies, the lunatic fool. Then where should we go? said the Shand, lumbering to her feet. After him, I think. Got any better ideas? No, said Silver. I imagine everyone will be far too occupied to notice us. They stepped out into the avenue of bars. There are unicorns in that one, volunteered Silver, pointing. We saw them being fed, and mermaids, I think, in a pool. They were given fish. Abu is a born collector, it seems. They passed a white dome temple-size. Close up it was a large white egg, the lower third buried in the sand. There was a small hole in one end. Laid by a bird, said Silver, indicating it with a thumb. Search me. I wouldn't put out crumbs for it. There's another one over there. No. It wasn't. It was, however, the derelict shell of the planetary lander from a terminus probe. A memory arose in Kin Unbidden of an ancient copy of a still more ancient publicity film. It looked smaller in real life. There were three deep gashes in it, as though some great beast had tried to grab it. Perhaps it had. If the thing beside it was an egg, something laid it. The interior was a mess. "'Jalo landed near the centre of the disk, at least,' said Silver. Kin looked at the... Oh, all right, call them talon marks. They could have been. "'I don't envy him,' she said. "'Our Abu is a genuine enthusiast, Silver. He never throws anything away.' There were running feet behind them, and they turned to see two men gaping at them. One held a pike and prodded it gingerly towards Silver. It was a mistake. The Shand merely grabbed it behind the point and felled its holder with a vicious downward slash, bringing it back afterwards to knock the other man's scurrying legs from under him. Then she started running towards the palace, wielding the shattered shaft like a club. Kin trailed after her. There didn't seem any alternative. They found Marco by following the screams. There was a courtyard and a mob of fighting men, and in the middle a blur behind a fence of swords. Marco was fighting five men at once and seemed to be winning. One man, who turned and found himself a few feet from Silver, slashed at her with desperate bravery. She blinked at him sleepily, then brought a fist down with vertebrae crushing speed. And all the time the sword sang. Kin had heard the phrase used poetically, but this one was singing, a weird electric ululation punctuated by clashes and screams. Marco was holding it at arm's length, almost cringing away from it. It moved of itself, darting from blade to blade, from blade to body, without appearing to pass through the intervening air. Blue light crackled along its edge. Silver padded up to two men and hit them hard. Of the ones who turned to stare before running away, three keeled over as Marco took advantage of their distraction. Alone in the courtyard except for the dead, Marco sagged and dropped the sword. Kin picked it up and looked at its edge. It should have been bloody. It wasn't. It was merely black, like a hole through the universe into something else. "'It's alive,' said Marco sullenly. "'I know you will scorn, but—' "'What we have here,' said Kin loudly, "'is merely a frictionless coated blade with an electronic edge. The metal blade is merely a conductor. You must have seen similar things. Carving knives, for example.' 
There was a pause. Marco nodded. Of course you are right, he said. Then let's get the hell out of here. She oriented herself as best she could and made for the nearest flight of steps. Where are you going? shouted Marco. To find the magician. Before you do, she added to herself. I don't want him killed. He's the only way out of here. She trotted through empty passages, heading upwards. A short flight of stairs looked familiar. She bounded up them, and there, at the end of a vaulted corridor, was the magician's chamber. Abu ibn Infra sat pensively cross-legged on the magic carpet, watching her carefully over the top of thin, steepled fingers. Somewhat nearer, the horse-faced shape of Azrafel crouched, splay-toed. Kin glanced around the room. There was no one else there. Abu ibn Infra spoke. "'Why have your creatures attacked and slaughtered my people?' translated Azrafel. "'We had expected better treatment,' said Kin. "'Why, you come from the place of thieves and liars with two renegade demons!' "'They're not demons,' she said sharply. "'They're intelligent living creatures. They just happen to be of different races. Now, about that flying carpet. They are demons!' Kin felt a gust of air from the far side of the room, and was in time to see two figures coalesce. They were Kung, not perhaps perfect copies, but they moved curiously as if whatever had created them had aimed for Kung shape without a knowledge of Kung anatomy. Abu had summoned demons to deal with her, and somewhere there was something that observed that the Kung shape was good for a fighter. It had added disc touches. In battle Kung usually carried no more than a short sword and a small blast deflector, leaving two arms for freelance throttling. These carried a weapon in each hand, and each one was different. One even twirled a morning star. It would be like being hit by colliding lawnmowers. Kin stared at the two expressionless faces, dead faces, and stopped herself from turning to run. She'd be running downstairs with those behind her. She raised the sword, hopefully. Something squirmed under her hand. Pain exploded up her arm and rattled her teeth. As the Kung things loped towards her, the sword crackled. Movement slowed. Through a pink glow, Kin saw the demons slow as if they'd run into jelly, but there was no sound at all. Hate settled on her dreamily, comfortably, and she watched the sword come up with interest. There was no shock when it drifted through an axe blade and went on to shear through an arm. The flesh was grey, boneless and bloodless, and another sword. She folded away from a snail's pace spear and started a long, slow leap that let her slice through a neck. She swung her feet round in time to land lightly, twist, and let the sword sweep like a scythe. Now there was a third enemy, backing away through the red mists. The sword jerked and Kin jumped, feeling her body curve behind the blade like the tail of a comet. It struck the figure in the chest, and Kin left it there. She drifted on and into the wall, colliding gently with a faint prickling sensation. Then she began a lazy tumble to the floor several miles away. It had no right to hit her so hard. She felt as though one side of her body was one long bruise. Her shoulder muscles were screaming. Her arm suggested that it had been dragged through a sieve. For a blissful few seconds she was able to view the clamouring sensations objectively, looking into the kaleidoscope of her own head. Then subjectivity set in with a rush. There was a slithering noise behind her, and a soft thud. With a certain amount of agony she turned her head to see Abu sprawled against the wall with a long red smear above him. Kin lay cherishing the coolness of the floor. 
Then she used her left arm, which merely ached horribly, to walk it on its fingers to the magician's outflung hand. She uncurled his fingers from the lamp and dragged it back until it was in front of her eyes. It didn't look anything special. She buffed its surface with a finger. "'I am Asriel, slave of the lamp,' said the demon in a sing-song voice. "'Your wish is my command.' "'Fetch me a doctor,' said Kin thickly. The demon disappeared. There was a tiny thunderclap. An agony later he reappeared. In his arms, kicking faintly and whimpering, was a small white-faced man in a black robe. "'What's that?' said Kin. "'Johannes Angelego of the University of Toledo.' Kin picked up the lamp and hammered it on the tiles. Azrafel screamed. The small scholar echoed him, then fainted. "'I mean a physician, you horse!' muttered Kin. "'Take that man back and bring me a proper doctor. It's a box eight foot long, demon, with lights and dials on it. A doctor! Understand? Hell, even a human doctor would do!' She hit the lamp again. Azrafel shrieked and disappeared. This time he took longer. When he reappeared he carried a figure riding pickaback and was holding a large equipment box in his arms. Kin looked up hazily at the familiar green all-suit of an intern at the company medical centre. The man jumped down, landing with all the athletic grace of one with limited access to rejuvenation treatments. Kin recognised Jen Terramilt, his face wavering slightly as the pain closed in. Good old Jen. She'd nearly married him a hundred and forty years ago. He'd have reached a high position in the company's medical history if he hadn't died while hunting shark on sister. His cool fingers reached out for her. Though the carpet could easily carry the three of them, as Raphael did not appear to weigh anything, Marco insisted on ordering the flying horse to follow them closely. "'Are we ready?' said Marco. The sun still hadn't shown above the disk, but there was enough pearly pre-dawn light to show Kin and Silver sitting on the carpet in the middle of the cool roof. Kin's arm felt numb. She shivered. "'Let's go,' she said. She rubbed the lamp. Azrafel appeared beside her. "'Well,' he said, "'what?' "'What happened to all that O oh, mistress stuff?' said Kin, surprised. Marco snorted impatiently. "'All right, don't get stuffy. That sort of stuff was all right for him. I gathered you were more democratic.' An etiquette lesson from a hundred and ninety years before jogged Kin's overloaded memory. A gentleman is someone who always says thank you to his robot. "'This lamp,' she said, "'suppose I were to give it to you.' The demon blinked and thought about it. After a moment a green tongue flicked out across its dry lips. "'I would take it and drop it over the edge of the world, O oh mistress,' it said. "'Then I would have peace.' "'Fly this carpet to the centre of the world, and I will give you the lamp,' said Kin. Azrafel grinned. Kin added, "'See the Kung on the horse? You will note he has the magic sword. I will give him the lamp. Should you betray us in any way, no doubt he will damage the lamp in interesting ways. The demon shivered. Point taken, he said gloomily. Is there no trust in this world? No, said Marco flatly. The carpet rose and skimmed over the darkened city, Marco following closely on the flying horse. Kin watched the houses pass below and thought, Something looks into our minds. The magic table produced food we merely thought of. When I thought of a doctor, it sent Azrafel with the man I had in mind, but it wouldn't produce an autodoc. Why? End of Side 10